Man, this kind of movie season, taking a break during this would be insanity. Yeah, it's there's a, a lot going on now, finally. It's funny because we can juxtapose all of the shit talking we did in the beginning of the year <laughs> with this now. And we're like, oh shit, all the movies are coming out now. <laughs> we complained about it for at least 11 months, and then we decided to take a week off once things started coming out. Right. So. Well, at least we kept the site running, at least, and we got all the reviews and stuff still going up. It's just the podcast and... Uh, but I guess that does mean we have more box office stuff to cover now than usual. Yeah, I mean, technically, last week was our, you know, biggest biggest week site-wise as far as uh, content goes. So. Yeah, so kind of ironic to take that week off of the podcast. <laughs> it is. Oops, oh well. Um, I'm happy to be back this week, though, because uh, this time last year we had watched uh, McCabe and Miss Miller, which we're going to get into a, a lot later, but it's a special film for our relationship which is yeah. nice it'll be nice to kind of go over that once we kind of get into the film there but we'll definitely uh discuss that and the film itself plenty at that point uh you know in the meantime so definitely definitely stay in the podcast because yes. this one should be interesting <laughs> but yeah it's, a, it's been an interesting uh week for movies i don't know what say uh I, I hate to to bring it up again i kind of don't want to but i'm going to anyway just because i want to ask you about the the scorsese letter to the editor for the new york times there did you read it in full or i did yeah i read it just this morning yeah it's a he put out the op-ed piece to kind of corroborate what he had already said to the reporters mm-hmm. we've we brought it up a couple times we brought up how dumb it is to keep talking about it so it is dumb for me to bring it up again here but uh i just i kind of guess i want to go on record more officially because i think the first time this came up i kind of went on the side against him there because i kind of fell for the the trappings of the headline there the the i fixated on the the cinema remark as well and kind of took right. it, took it that that literal way that i was meant to because of the media distortion um but you know even over just like the immediate follow-up he gave and especially in this recent letter you know you could see that he's not out you know to get marvel movies or anything it's it's definitely much more the industry that perpetuates them and is snuffing out all the smaller films and you know everything going on between the fact that i mean you can see it in his work himself he's literally been driven to netflix to make his latest film because it's the only person who's going to help him i think that makes sense in his op-ed how he explains netflix is the only place to make a movie like this anymore so it's more about the industry and the system, well, he, and especially Disney, more than Marvel as, like, a subsidiary of that. He even highlights that he doesn't want to, you know, do it necessarily for Netflix, or in, or in the sense that he wants his film to be seen on as many screens as possible, and Netflix is inherently limiting to that, because you know that they're they're more so, like, accommodating the people who are making films for them by allowing their films to have short runs in theaters. And even then, you're not, yeah. not going to go see The Irishman in a multiplex, you know. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I did. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, I, when I'm going to see it later, I don't know if any multiplexes well, around me that are playing it. But, I, I mean, I had the same... Not thing. quite a multiplex. It's more like just like the Sith Film Center, but yeah. I saw it in theater. Yeah, so. yeah. So and that's great that you got to see it. And you got to see it early, too, so that was really nice. I wish you could tell us a bit about it, but you got to keep those, um, those lips sealed for a little longer, right? Yeah, it's a long movie. Uh, it, it has De Niro and Pesci, and um, that's. Uh, can I say anything else? <laughs> I <don't, laughs> no, I don't know if you can. Without getting in trouble, uh, but uh, just in general, we're finally getting lots of big prestige films back around. Uh, you know, we got the, the the Lighthouse this week, as well as Parasite, which we've talked about before, because some people got yeah. to see it somehow, some way. 
Yeah, this week the Parasite became Bong's uh, biggest movie he's ever released. So there's good things happening. Welcome to the Twin Geekcast with Calvin and David. This week we're two Josephs looking for a manger as we cover Knives Out, Terminator, The Lighthouse, and what do we have for our feature presentation? For our feature this week we're looking at Robert Altman's 1971 revisionist western masterpiece from McCabe and Mrs. Miller, starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. I have an exciting thing, I went and saw Knives Out, I'm doing a lot of the um, a lot of the award season screenings, so I'm getting into some early stuff and uh, I'm very impressed with Brian Johnson seeing what he has to say. Yeah, I'm really. Ex- uh, it's actually really exciting that you're getting to all these new early screeners with that uh, Seattle Film Critics prestige and all the press screenings and such. But Knives Out, especially, is an, an interesting one to get a kind of early access to, but one you can actually talk about, unlike The Irishman, which we were mentioning earlier. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's uh, embargoes up on this, and I went. Uh, Late last week, our review's up on the site. I really enjoyed it. I, I think you'll find a lot more in it than you find in the um, the Orient Express and and that upcoming movie. The, Death uh, on the Nile. The, yeah, the Perot movies. Uh, I just think there's so much more in what Ryan Johnson's doing, creating an original thing. Th- uh, the pieces work together so well, it feels cohesive. And as he's leaving one scene, it just seamlessly transitions between, like, Daniel Craig interviewing a great cast of characters with like an amazing Jamie Lee Curtis and and a really tanned out um, really strange Tony Collette. She's a, she's very strange in the movie and very fun to watch. Uh, and it's it's just a great production. I I really enjoyed it. And uh, Anna De Armas ends up being the main character, which uh, I think a lot of people have been waiting to see her star turn. So that's a lot of fun. I, I gotta ask, because I remember one of the biggest things buzzing around the film for a long time when it was first announced uh, and stuff this year is that there was this competition of cast between, which had the the greater cast between this and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And now that you've <laughs> seen both, which one do you think kind of comes out on top? Little Women. Um, <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> uh, I think uh, I think probably this has the the greater ensemble going on. Um, I, I mean that has such a good cast, but uh, this one works together in like the family unit of a of a famed playwright, um, and it's really interesting to see how they just play off each other. Uh, there's such direct callouts to the alt right, which is, you know, we just started getting the movies that were made after Trump was elected, so we're getting very very literal callouts now. Um, I think that's really like a, an interesting angle of it, uh, especially because this was effectively birthed from all the vitriol that was spat at Ryan Johnson after, uh, you know, the release of Last Jedi. And I think that's that's great that uh, his retort to that is making a whole film just kind of poking fun at them and such. I'm I'm curious to know though how it incorporates into the the whodunit kind of murder mystery aspect because that's not the first avenue you would think to go. I think like it it, hmm. it just seems like. This was such interesting. It was like, oh, well, who done it? Like, when was the last time we've seen one of those? Well, Anna Darmus' yeah. character, her parents are immigrants, and the whole story is like, um, maybe the family's going to hold it against her. She was with the guy as he had died, so uh, maybe the family's going to hold the murder against her and find out, you know, what she did wrong and expose her parents as immigrants. And so it gets into some of the politics there, as well as uh, Mark Hamill has a son in the movie who's. Um, 
just a just really baseless douchebag. He's a he's an alt right troll. He just spends his time on the phone. He's not really a part of the movie, but um, there's a there's just a good sense in it that um that it's commenting on these political issues of the day based on Anna Darmus's character and kind of flipping that uh, death of the patriarchy thing on its head. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, through like that lens, it has a lot of the um, left leaning messaging. Um, like the empowering of the immigrant and the death of the patriarchy, that kind of stuff's all very present. That's good to hear. Uh, you know, I, I lament that we don't get more films nowadays that reflect uh, our kind of uh, cultural struggle as much or our political issues because, you know, everyone wants to say that they don't want politics in their movies, but honestly, politics makes movies way more interesting and better. If you look oh, yeah. back, you know, and that's the thing is that you can look back at different decades of film and see how the culture is reflected in the art there. And that's what the most interesting art is. You, know, We need to pick up that speech again from Orson Welles from The Third Man that, that little bitty gives about, you know, uh, the, the Renaissance, be, you know, uh, being birthed from all the war in Italy and such. That's Right. It's basically it's a perfect, uh, perfectly apt description of why we want a reflection of you know political un- unrest in our art. You know, no matter what we do, it's going to be reflected. So we might as well do it with intention because uh, nothing is apolitical. Everything has politics in it. Uh, just by casting uh, someone, you make a political decision. Yeah, in in some manner, I think it's it's not impossible. I mean, by the idea, I think, even this idea of trying to omit, you know, politics from your film—that in its own sense is a political decision. You're making a political statement yeah. by omitting politics. Exactly, um, and the just if you want to go see a fun mystery too, this is really fun. I mean, the politics politics don't make it an unfun movie. If anything, they're some of the fun of the jokes in the movie. It's a pretty funny movie, and everyone plays well. I don't know what accent daniel craig is doing in it but it's an accent well you know uh, daniel craig i think he doesn't get enough credit for all those accents and everything you know you remember uh you know that was great he was the like the revelation of soderbergh's logan lucky when that was out a couple years yeah he's so great (laughs) he was so funny and i don't know why he needs to talk like foghorn leghorn but uh um, he has a real interesting accent it's like a full southern accent in in this one as well or (laughs) yeah it's like a like a full southern drawl. He kind of talks <laughs> like this the whole movie. That's great. I love I love hearing that. It's always really funny when you see, uh, uh, especially British actors, I think, do these interesting exaggerated American accents because some of them are really <laughs> good at it, and it's very funny. And when he's on screen with Armas, I think you see like the magic of, of their chemistry there. Um, it's, it's very funny because she can't lie without throwing up, so there are a lot of gags around <laughs> And he's like this expert detective, so he's trying not to get her to throw up, but also figure out the case, and there's a lot of fun around that. Um, I, I don't know, I hope everyone goes and sees it. I, I think it's worthwhile. I might, I might go see it, or I at least hope to see it when it comes around. Uh, For sure. You know, on, on Blu-ray or whatever. Uh, it's It's got my interest, at the very least. It's one of these ones in this end of the year here, which also has my interest. Uh, kind of like... Uh, I just want to talk about it briefly here because neither of us have seen it, but Motherless Brooklyn has been something of interest to me. Uh, I've I've read some of the book, and I guess the translation's a lot different than the book. I haven't read enough to really comment on it, but um, I, I don't know why he would have changed so much. Uh, I guess it looks kind of like it's shot like a soap, so I don't know. I'm, I'm very interested in the division on it. Mm-hmm. I'm... 
I'm interested to know what's going on with it. It looks it's looked very interesting to me, and I'm excited to hear that Ed Norton's, um, you know, taking on this kind of detective story with, uh, you know, in, in the director's chair, no less. And I think it's interesting. Yeah. And I'm sad to see that it's not doing well in its first week here. And I don't know yeah. how much of I think a lot of that has to do with a lack of advertising because I haven't seen much kind of leading into the film here. And I think some of that is the studio potentially being a little scared after, I don't know if you remember hearing about the onset incident where one of the stuntmen yeah. died early, right. earlier this year. Yeah, it had, yeah, it had some negative press around that. And then it seems like maybe there was a, you know, maybe some budgetary cuts around that and it was kind of forced out at the end. But, uh, this is a movie he's wanted to make for a long time, so uh, I'm glad he gets to get back to directing and try something new. Mm-hmm. And I think on that same note of other box office failures, are uh, it's also important to highlight uh, a film that we wouldn't usually talk about here, but uh, Arctic Dogs, which came in at number 10 <laughs> at the box office, making a less than $3 million in its opening weekend, which is uh, reportedly the worst, uh, uh, the worst profit... Er, uh, the worst for any. It was the yeah. Go ahead, because my. It was the worst. <laughs> well, you said it was the worst flop that's been recorded in that wide of an opening. Yeah, which for, is insane. for over twenty eight hundred theaters, is the worst flop ever seen for a film with that wide of a release, which is uh, crazy. It only made less. It made we less s- than three million. And like I was saying with. We say that, we say Illumination looks super generic and like it's flat, but there's there's probably something to it because. This is the most generic-looking kids movie out right now. Uh, I don't know. The look of it reminded me of, like, what was that, Wonder Park earlier this year? Do you remember, right. remember that thing? Yeah. That's, that's the the quality of animation uh, from the promotional stuff I've seen, it appeared to me here. And again, this their terrible job with the most thing. I think that's what's even more impressive about it, is that not only is it just such a failure for how wide it is, it's a damn kids movie that failed this hard. Yeah, this time of year, I mean... Um, what are you competing against? <laughs> you already had the the kind of Arctic movie. What was it a couple weeks ago? Was um, that Abominable. God, I saw it, and I don't even know the name. Abominable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the one with Coldplay in it. Um, so, I mean, you're just competing directly against that. Maybe that's a problem. But uh, when else are you going to release your Arctic movie during Frozen? Well, yeah, you can see that uh, anything else is here. Uh, they, they've got Adam's Family still hanging around the box office oh, as yeah. far as animated competition. But that's uh, at this point when we're in November here, you know, it's past that time for that film. I think afterwards you're not going to go see Adam's Family. I expect a significant drop off for it. I think overall in our week, we didn't have a lot of revelations. We had the new t- Terminator, which neither of us has seen, that is open at exactly the same place as the last Terminator, but with more of a budget. Yeah, which is considered it's it's not doing well right now. It's floundering, but the target audience for it is generally going to be overseas anyway. That's where the last yeah. one made most of its money, so that's more than likely going to be the, the take for this new one. Uh, what I've heard from the film, we're still waiting to hear back from some other people on the site who are going to go see it. I think some of them went to go see it last night, right? I think uh, two of them are seeing it today, today so we'll okay. find out next week. All right, but yeah, and so then hopefully we'll have a review uh, soon after that. But uh, the the consensus I'm getting from otherwise on the internet is that it's a better Terminator film than the last three, but not necessarily good. I mean, it's not a high bar. No, right? no, not at all. It's such a low bar to set. Especially, um, I think, after yeah, the I mean, last it, one. 
I mean, just all the trailers that put James Cameron so so far up on the thing. Um, I think the victory of it is that nobody wanted to see it, and now people are trying to go see it today. So, um, I think that's you know more interesting than the other outcome where nobody wanted to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we were all very skeptical of this. I'm still skeptical of it. I mean, I don't have any interest in seeing any of the Terminator sequels after two there, mm. but this one. Oh. It definitely still feels like you're like, because uh, you're having that Halloween problem as well. Same kind of situation where it's like, all right, we're scrapping all the other sequels and starting from where the good ones were and going from there. <laughs> and then you just know this one will be scrapped someday too. Yeah, they're they're never they'll gonna, have to. They're never gonna stop making these. I mean, I hope at some point they're gonna give up and realize that this is not. Uh, worth doing especially with something like this or if terminator isn't performing like halloween at least got the excuse of actually justifying its existence and continuation uh with the the amount of money it made but i don't know about yeah like terminator here especially with how much it costs to make i mean with something like the halloween franchise you can make those films for dirt cheap yeah um i mean this just isn't going to outperform what it costs uh it might overseas but that's the only hope for it yeah well uh I would like to, before we jump out of the box office here, talk about uh, one film, the the first revelation of the year, as far as I'm concerned, that we didn't get to talk about last week because we were gone, uh, but we did finally get to see, both of us, all of us, I think, on the site got to finally see uh, Lighthouse, the Lighthouse, as we greatly anticipated. We haven't discussed it all on the podcast, and um, I guess we should give context that we were all very, very high on this uh, coming out of the theater, and then... It's grown with all of us as we've gone on. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's the case. When I when I walked out, I was still, I don't know, for the first two or three days, parsing all of my feelings and understandings of the film because mm. there's definitely a whole lot to process with it, and it's only grown and grown in my memory. And some of the people we've seen have gone back two, three, four times to see it and only loved it more and more each time they see it, and I hope to do the same. I don't know if I'll make it out to the theater to see it a second time, but, uh, man, I would love to. I hope everyone does get to see it at least once in theater because it's special and it's uh, even boxed in, in in a square format. It's it's so impressive on screen. Uh, that that was and the, the first sounds. thing that really struck me about it was the the aspect ratio because you know I was anticipating that was one of the big selling points for me. I'm like, this is an interesting thing to do is to do a wholly different aspect ratio and see how it affects the framing of the film in a, in a literal sense in some ways but it really immediately gave it this greater sense of paranoia because everything was so enclosed i think too often a film starts like that now and it slowly opens up or it plays with the aspect ratio i love the confidence of staying there and mm-hmm. just making it saying yeah that's the film <laughs> that's right. it well, you have that problem sometimes with IMAX sequences filmed and things, and sometimes a lot of people won't yeah. notice it where the things get, uh, you know, the bars on the top shrink a bit or whatnot to make things wider. But, mm. you know, it's it's nice to see someone using an aspect ratio uh, in an artistic manner, making a conscious choice as you would a, a lens, effectively. And it was such a fun conversation when everyone was coming out and saying, Wait, is this just a buddy comedy? Yeah, it's it's, it's very comedic. It's surprisingly everyone's like, "Oh man, this is like a uh, with you know super heavy homosexual vibes going on." <laughs> there are, I mean, when they're when they're dancing together and there's a lot of flatulence and uh, <laughs> man, they're there's, they're such close bunk mates and there's all sorts the dog of, part. There's all sorts of interesting uh, masculine observation aspects going on here and really tearing down. 
those ideas. And then the mythological aspects on top of that. And you've got all of the interesting um, kind of uh, Lovecraftian horror elements that pop up uh, intermittently throughout. Uh, there's a lot to dissect with the film, and it's hard to talk about without going into some more explicit details. Uh, but it's it's by far, in a way, the favorite film of me for this year, and definitely one for the decade, I think. I, I, I think it's going to get on both lists for us. So. I, am, I, I mean, I wouldn't expect it to be low on either list at the end of the year. No, um, not at all. We'll say, I have a feeling that William Defoe's been acting like he's been, um, what would you say, like a, he's been auditioning for this part his last, like, five movies, <laughs> like... Just like maybe the last ten years, Defoe's just been in these art house movies, just waiting for this part, right? And so, it feels like it finally became him. Uh, you know, I think Defoe is going to get so much uh, highlighting and credit for the film here, and deservedly so because he's magnificent in it and like the perfect casting choice. But I, it was really Pattinson who blew me away. Maybe it's just because yeah. I haven't been watching as much of his art house rise as others have, but I don't know. I just found something really special, especially since he's the central character of the film and he's just so committed to the performance and going all out and really losing it in some moments. And it's absolutely wonderful to watch. The you know it's it's hard enough to make a film where it's just two people and the focus point. There's nothing else particularly going on but both of them just do such a great job and have a great chemistry it's it's really an inspired casting decision for both of them there eggers really knows how to handle them i mean yeah pattinson's always looked up so much to jack nicholson and i could finally see that over the top crazy acting that he's really emerged into and grown into i mean since good time you saw that he was ready to do this kind of frenetic art piece and uh, finally something matches like his caliber of acting because uh, we also had the king this week which is just an iffy movie uh, and he just doesn't get anything to do in it and it reminds you how wasted he's been um but between this and high life he's had a hell of a year i think it's kind of interesting that you compared him to nicholson there because especially in the lighthouse there's uh, such an overt uh, homage going on to the shining as you kind of ran yeah. towards the end there's a you know straight things you know images picked straight out of the film there and so it's uh, it's interesting to see and be built off of that i've talked before about how uh, you know homages and how poorly they can be handled sometimes especially during yeah. our, our tarantino podcast i particularly remember but you know this is another great case where you see the influence but you see how it builds on that and it uses it in its own unique way it's not just straight ripping it no, I mean, I think it's better than its influences. <laughs> I'd prefer to watch this than Bergman or The Shining, for the most part. So, Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting and totally valid take as well, and I may very well agree with you with that on uh, another viewing or two. Uh, you know, as far as for compared to Edgar's other work with The Witch, I think I walked yeah. out initially, like, the, the Witch hit me harder on the, the first viewing there, and, like, just as a singular experience, I felt like I, I definitely connected with it more but the lighthouse has been growing more and more and i imagine i'm going to and it also just feels more catered to particular interests of mine you know i love the nautical setting so very yeah. much and i think that's that's immediately more appealing i go way out of my way to go check out lighthouses i think i've i think i've toured like seven of them in the area it's always been a passion of mine to go well, just look at them and see them um i love their symbolism for the sea and how they look and you know their purpose it's a they're beautiful to me so i was already excited just technically for the movie and then formally i just think it has so much going on that uh, 
I think he really transcends his influences and gets to something really special. So, uh, my film of the year as well. Well, you know, that setting and the lighthouses and all that in particular, it's all very close to home for us. You know, it's the the sea and everything we love. And especially, like, you know, I remember uh, back where I used to live on Woodby Island, you know, one of the big movie things of theirs that they shot the lighthouse stuff for the ring uh, right mm-hmm. right off the island there. So that's always something that's a big part of my memory. My dad loved lighthouses. Lighthouses were something he collected little models of and everything. And so, Oh, really? Yeah. And so it's it's just something intrinsic to both me and you that we love that kind of setting which is kind of the the perfect note for this this film as well it's not nautical for our feature film here but the washington setting here is nonetheless uh, absolutely what brings us together for mccabe and mrs miller i'm just so pleasantly surprised that we got back to it within a year that's it's really special for us. So. Yeah, this this is the thing. So McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the you know this great Robert Altman revisionist western. It's got a bit of a history for us here. This is the film that more or less brought us together and kind of led to the founding of the site, which I think was is kind of the appropriate starting off for this uh, next chapter here. These next fifty podcasts, I think, is kind of the perfect choice for it. It's great because it's a movie about forming a company because. Um, Famously in the Roger Ebert review, he talks about how the ampersand implies company and right, how McCabe and Miss Miller is a formation of a company. It's, and it's, it's kind of how we started the website. Yeah, it's a, that, right. that idea of a business relationship being invoked. And that was, uh, again, the, the sprinklings, the first idea here. We came together to work on uh, a project for a Western idea. And I, I pitched this one to you because I had just recently seen it uh, to discuss about. And we were t- talking about doing something together with it. And that didn't uh, end up happening. But we did sit down for the first time and watch this film together over a, you know, a, a discord conversation. And, and I think it, I think it became our, our reason for watching movies together each week or at least discussing them together. So every week since we've had a podcast or something that we've discussed. Right. It took a couple other podcasts to kind of like, like trial runs to get it off the ground first. It did. But yeah. But this was eventually the the starting point here where we watched this and found we had a great conversation together. And it was fascinating, I think, just how by happenstance uh, everything happened to line up to really appeal to both Mm -hmm. of us. And like finally, like not only the fact that the film is set in a Washington setting where we're both from and and live in, but I remember distinctly you telling me that you had just been to a, a... a Leonard Cohen like uh, revival concert or whatever it was, and oh an yeah, exhibition. I I had just been in Montreal during Canada Day, and I had ventured back into the city after a jazz festival, and like my soul was like infused with so much music, and I went to the um, Heritage Museum in Montreal, and uh, they had a special showing of a Cohen documentary um, about his relationship, how he's the son of Montreal, and um, basically what his music meant to the city. It, uh, it was just so powerful for me. So, coming off of that, I went into this with a great, greater appreciation of an artist that I always loved and respected for, you know, his darkness and his boldness and his old world sense, which I think applies well to a western. Well, it was just it was such an interesting circumstance there that you happen to have just done that, and then the film opens up with those that beautiful Leonard Cohen song, and I was like, oh yeah, this is a big facet of the film because I was, I was telling you a little bit about it as we were starting it up over the the chat there. And then you I remember you informed me about that. It was kind of just this weird, like, 
you know, colliding of these uh, important things going on, and it just all happened to accumulate in, in this film, which is this perfect embodiment of the things that we love, especially this idea of westerns. Me and you both famously love westerns. We try and talk about westerns as often as we can here. It was a great moment of synchronicity between us that was also like more of a formal start to our friendship because we'd been talking for long enough, right? But then we found like this equal footing and ground that we really relate to movies on and it was something special that uh, you know both of us gave it a 10 it's not yeah. like we're indifferent to any part of this movie <laughs> no it's a it's a magical movie and i think that experience only emboldened our feelings about it and i just find it uh you know it could have been any other film i could have pitched you another western to talk about and something that maybe like have been more my uh classic you know john ford like sensibilities that you may not have mm-hmm. connected with as much like this just happened to push all your buttons which which i don't always get you know so i'm not always the best at targeting what you're looking for (laughs) and it's um i think because of that it's something that we both appreciate we could have come to the same place watching a john ford western of course but um i don't think it would have been the significant singular experience of that moment no and that kind of shared experience it's definitely one of those moments you look back and it's it's just like this vivid memory and a defining moment uh, in a relationship and that's one of those things you don't imagine coming across often you know like when you try and look back and be like oh when did we really become friends and it's like no nah, it was is that moment that really sealed it i think and and kind of led us on this path and here we are more than a year later and still doing this as strong as ever and getting better uh, hopefully we're getting better yeah, and um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we do for the intro next week yeah. uh, I think that it, it just works for me that uh, the images are so strong um, we were talking about how I just love a western the entry into the town is such an important part for uh, basing a setting and this is shot up in the hills of Vancouver and it just feels so northwestern it's full of fog and rain and, and mountain snowfall Oh, and that's the the big thing here is that uh, Robert Altman famously said that this is an, an anti-Western. It's everything a Western mm-hmm. isn't effectively, and so he tried to he he creates this town, this place you don't think about as being very Western. It's not deserty at all. It's the exact opposite. Like you said, right. it's it's rain soaked, it's snow covered, uh, but it's still the West. The you know our state here you know has its own history of you know Western pioneering. You know, and it has all the the gold rush stuff going on up here and everything uh and so the founding of this little town here is as significant a part of the western and still thematically as representative as anything out in the deserts of california i like it because you get to the literal geographical end of the west right Right. once you get up into vancouver in the hills there you get to basically what would be the end of the northern peak of the west so um, i really like the idea that it's sort of we covered shane before I think it has a lot in common with Shane that the gunfighter, possibly if he is a gunfighter, already went on and he did the exciting stuff that you see in every other Western. And this is sort of what he does after the fact. Yeah, it's this interesting uh, duality of uh, McCabe's character here. And that's another part of the kind of anti-Western aspect here is that uh, McCabe is, by all definitions, not a hero by any means. He's a he's a cowardly character. He's a, you know, slithering kind of uh, trickster, you know. Mm. Uh, he's a snake oil salesman in many ways. But he also has this reputation as he arrives in the town as this kind of famous gunfighter. Uh, it's left <laughs> semi-ambiguous as to if he actually is that gunfighter. They kind of have some lines later on indicating that, you know, he's totally going off of reputation. He didn't. He hasn't killed anyone in his life is effectively what 
uh, people say, but it is still just hearsay between the characters. They can't say for sure if McCabe really was that person at one point or another, but what's clear is that now he's he's not. He's kind of masquerading behind uh, the persona that's been given to him and using that to kind of create clout and build up a business in this town. Yeah, he's kind of used it as his leverage to create a business deal with the with Julia Christie, who's running the local whorehouse, who's watch watches over the girls. Yeah, she comes in, uh, you know, a little ways through the film and kind of takes over and uh, becomes the real brains of the operation because McCabe is not a very smart man, as much as he likes to think so. Um, mm. <laughs> and so she really uh, goes out of her way to to kind of show the girls the way and make it as prosperous a business as they can and they kind of begrudgingly work together in a in a way that uh informs a kind of real developing relationship and i think that's some of the most interesting stuff of the film is that altman is just really really good with creating a community and characters that feel genuinely believable we should talk about that a lot i think because uh when you get into the setting after he's arrived into town you're just set in this you know little you know card table at a bar and it holds there for a long time it spends a lot of time indoors for a western because it's pretty nasty outdoors um and you get the sense of the people living there and everything's lived in people go about their routines even during scenes they're off having conversations about their daily life and that's just something that altman's a, a damn expert at you know he's used to handling giant ensemble cast of films and this is one of his more intimate uh, you know, character pieces, I would say, where it's confined to just a few uh, major roles here. It's not something like Nashville or Shortcuts or The Player, where the cast is of, you know, 20s and 30s of people. It's it's huge amounts of people all who get, like, equal time together in representation. But yet, it, you know, you see that carry over to something here where all the background characters have their own unique personalities and they're all doing stuff in the background and you have that uh, signature Altman-esque style of overlapping dialogue constantly and you have to parse through it all to, to kind of catch everything and that was a big thing that I think that deterred people originally in 1971 from the film is that they couldn't understand a lot of it between that and <laughs> the unique like mixing and uh, sound mixing going on here it's a very uh, hazy kind of film both in the look and in the sound of it and it, it kind of obscures some things so if you don't pick up on everything going on it's it's an intentional kind of aspect here and almost an you know it's not necessary uh, you know I was saying during the film like you could probably not hear a word of dialogue and still get a sense of everything Ullman wants you to in the film. There are only a few points where you should have to hear it because it's, in some way, I'm glad it's paired with the Lighthouse conversation, a film where, you know, the dialogue isn't coherent, doesn't really matter as much as you think it would. Um, I think there's a lot of mumbling in the film and it doesn't quite matter what they're saying because uh, it's not like plot, plot, plot. It's all... um, lived in and uh, exploring just a moment of time in people's lives well also it gives it that extra level of authenticity like you said not only the mumbling but the actually uh you know the actual dialogue written in here is is really great as well there's a line you highlight when we're talking mccabe's like you know if a frog had wings he wouldn't bump his ass so much and, <laughs> and just other like very weird uh sayings and such they throw in there that's just really interesting to hear and it makes you chuckle i think a lot there and so i think the writing of the film is really fantastic what you can manage to hear yeah and i think it's funny because he's kind of he kind of mumbles these songs to himself as well mm-hmm. it's a very kind of a, a film you almost live in in many ways uh, i find 
uh, it's very atmospheric, and that's like the main priority I think of it, especially with the way the film is is shot. Like I said, through that hazy kind of uh, grudgy look kind of going on there, uh, you know, especially in the beginning, and you feel the sense of the town more than anything. There's a lot of time devoted to establishing the setting, uh, which makes for a really strong ramp up uh, as you get to the the conclusion later on, which we'll get to, but. Uh, just in, especially the beginning i think the beginning is just such a master class of introduction of elements in combination with the uh you know not only the the walk into the town like you said the stranger comes to town but the perfect song choice talking about cohen's music and particularly that one i, I love the use of the stranger song there and how it uh, echoes the sequence as it's playing out i mean i just love the choice of song because of course it's about like maybe it's like card sharks and dealers and strangers coming to town it it has the perfect western feeling that altman's about to establish and it's almost like the song of the town it's it's so emblematic of what's about to happen and what the feeling is about to be um i think cohen's music works so well to that effect that it it embodies what became miss miller is all about when we talked about this a bit during the film as well is that this is around the time when the western was dying out uh, after the 1960s that you know the western genre was on a huge decline and it got a bit of a bump in the the early 70s here with stuff like this and then some you know some other films going on at the same time but they were largely very different westerns in this one especially and uh some of that has to do with the particular music choice it's it's very much out of time here it's it's not a classical score in any sense uh it's modern music being infused into the uh, film here particularly it's it's folk music and mccabe was not the last film to do that uh, a year after uh you know i point out to you that and Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, the whole soundtrack is done by uh, Bob Dylan, you know, who's uh, the king of folk music effectively here and still is in, you know, so many ways. I think I think folk tradition especially carries well into the, like, campfire story of the Western and what we're about to experience. Uh, I guess Altman had just found... Yeah, he just... <laughs> found <laughs> Cohen. He heard it at a party and thought it should be interesting to put in the music, which incidentally is how a lot of our scores are being found well, and that's, as we go on with these podcasts. And that's such an interesting thing as well, because it sounds, especially in that beginning sequence, it sounds composed for the film. You couldn't imagine it uh, written almost for anything else. And just the fact that he was at a party and heard these, and I don't know what party you're at that you're playing Leonard Cohen music. It doesn't seem like a very, <laughs> doesn't seem like a very lively party that he would hear these three songs at but you know he did and he and he got them and it's just it's amazing how well it incorporates into the film and i and i i mean it might be the good kind of party where you're getting eggs and whiskey yeah <laughs> those damn prairie oysters he drinks throughout <laughs> nasty looking but it's it's, I, it's a fun character detail i think i think the character details are so elaborate too like the large coats and the fur and everything just looks so unwestern in it um I think that's really special about it, that uh, I, everyone has great outfits. Julie Christie also has excellent outfits in it. Yeah, that, that fur coat in particular that you mentioned there, it's such a, uh, a lavish feature of the film, and particularly of McCabe's characteristic. It, it reflects his uh, pompacity, I would say, mm. uh, which is it's, it's just great, grand, like overwhelming coat on him, and it looks wonderfully extravagant. I, I, would, I would totally... 
want one of those and then probably not wear it because it's too overwhelming (laughs) (laughs) it's a little bit too self-aggrandizing for anyone to wear but (laughs) i think it says something about him and and warren Beatty is the perfect selection for a kind of self-aggrandizing character like that like i'm almost like is he acting i can't tell if that's just warren Beatty (laughs) being the the pompous dick he is (laughs) that's the other thing i don't really feel like people are acting in the movie i feel like they're just living (laughs) in this world I don't know how much acting is actually happening. <laughs> but no, I mean, I I get the sense that there is. You know, I, I don't want to diminish any of the performances here. And, and Warren is certainly... Oh, I think it's great. Yeah, Warren's certainly putting on, like, a performance of a lifetime here. And he's appreciated as one of those these great, great actors. But it's just, it's such a, a perfect casting choice there and reflective of, you know, the notorious personality that Warren is that it just makes so much sense to, to call that out. But everyone in it is... Is super great and like we said there's a such a cast of many great character actors uh we talk a bit about you know there's lots of raw uh, altman regulars as well and particularly uh keith carradine stands out as this, oh, yeah. as this wonderfully wholesome character that is just struck down in the most tragic way and in a heartless way too that scene on the bridge is just this this major impactful moment that stands out to me and it feels like the film builds up to that in many ways and the the execution of it is it's just very uh expertly mapped out i think it's just it's it's really the tension is pulled tight on it and it builds and builds and you know the the way the editing cuts in closer to it as we're getting closer to the climactic moment and then when it does happen it just plays in the sudden bang and this wide <laughs> shot and slight slow motion where he falls in and it's just it's an awful, awful moment because they make Keith Carradine such a sympathetic and wholesome character. I mean, we talked about all the all the shots of the bridge kind of imply some great action and turning point is about to happen there. It's a big... Like, from the opening Stranger song with the guy just... The way that he's tapping his feet on the bridge yeah. as he walks and the pacing of it. It's a big you feature. You feel that there's some great tension escalating on it. It's a big feature of the town throughout. And like we said, there's a lot that goes into the film prior to that that just establishes the town in so many ways there's this wonderful shot really early on right after the first night where they just focus on this uh uh building up of the church uh in the town Mm -hmm. there uh, during sun sunset it's this gorgeous shot as they're putting the cross on top of it and it's just establishing all these landmarks of the town and all the surroundings but the bridge especially gets highlighted a lot and it feels like it's building that moment and then uh you know a few times before we also get lots of close-ups of the feet on the ice uh, underneath the bridge Mm. there which also kind of foreshadows to what's going to ultimately happen in that sequence there and you almost get the feeling right when you enter that sequence where you see the kid shooting the jug on on the ice there that something is going to happen <laughs> that might be one of the first gunshots we see in the film as well i can't recall if there was one before then yeah i believe it is um and it it just shows his recklessness with the gun too that he's willing to just shoot at anything because of course there would be a greater danger to opening up the ice but uh then it makes it more tragic when Carradine's character falls through the ice well that's the that's the thing that's awful about it is that his his approach to Carradine's character there it's of this moment of total vanity like this like this yeah. need to make up for it because he's just embarrassed himself by totally missing the bottle so many times in front of all his friends so he specifically then targets Carradine's character just to prove that he can 
he can hit with his gun. Well, and, he, and it's cowardly because Carradine says he can't shoot right, and then he challenges him after that to grab his gun and it's not hand a, it to him. He it's not he even doesn't even duel, challenge him. No. no, he doesn't even challenge him to shoot him because he's too afraid. So uh, it's just a moment of great cowardice where he asks him to hand his gun, and he, Carradine knows he's about to get shot. He and might he as does. well have shot him in the back. You know, that's the kind of idea of cowardice here and that's yeah. i think cowardness cowardice is a kind of theme of the film as well especially through mccabe's character and we see throughout the whole uh final sequence and everything going on is that nobody here is particularly heroic um you know these are all mm. and, and that's this kind of stark look of the film and the, the revisionist element of it here and that you see the kind of grungy look of the west in a way that you don't think about like we said not only in the atmosphere and and the look of the film and going to this more kind of darker and uh you know wetter kind of place of the west but also just in Mm -hmm. the characters themselves they are definitely more reflective of you know real people who existed and, and kind of took these unsavory routes of going at things there's no heroes at all in the film no um it it just feels like there's that whole band of just misfits that are like running the town and uh, i mean it's lawless it's about a company running a whorehouse anyway i mean there's no there's nothing good happening there well that's what that band is coming in to do there's you know from a bigger company who wants to muscle in there and take over mccabe's operation and so they offer him you know uh like meager amounts of money and then when he refuses they're just like we're just gonna kill him and take it from him and that's kind of ultimately right. where where the conclusion to the film kind of leads to in this big, uh, you know, chase sequence through the snowy covered town, trying to hunt down Cape as he snakes his way through and, and tries to, you know, fend off for his life. I think we agree that the Great Silence is the ultimate snow western, but there's something really special about the snow fight that emerges in this. Yeah, because we have so much context for the town. Yeah, and also just the the choices that are made into making it uh you know in the filming here especially the cinematography changes entirely in that final showdown sequence it becomes much more frenetic there's a really Mm. fantastic zoom and whip pan shots that you know create a greater sense of tension as well and the silence of the sequence the sound design of it it's so perfectly thought out and everything it's so quiet and so it creates that sense of paranoia even greater that you know if even like a twig snap happens it sets sets a jolt down your spine yeah absolutely it's just a great feeling i i love the verticality in it i love how um because i already understand the town it plays out well contextually um graham wrote a great piece about spielberg's understanding of context and action scenes and this spends more than half a movie just setting up perfect context and Altman knows exactly what he's doing. Well, especially because you you have another uh, concurrent um, uh, conflict going on at the same time here. Because as soon as oh, he yeah. leaves the church, yeah. uh, you know, and the one of the the, the priest who took his gun gets gets shot in this very gruesome moment, like this most gruesome moment in the film, where his hand gets kind of shot off and dangles by the tendon. It's disgusting and a great moment of that kind of that stark realism you expect from a kind of revisionist western like this, but. Uh, and then he ends up dropping the lantern and sets the whole church ablaze. So while McCabe is kind of sneaking around and hiding behind snowbanks and different buildings and such, the whole town is gathering together to try and put out the fire of the church. It's just, you know, blazing more and more. And so Altman's cutting back and forth, juxtaposing between these two events going on. 
I just think it, I think it all works so well, and it's so cohesive. Um, just the whole image of McCabe and Miss Miller, what that conjures for me, is such a bold image that's stark and different from any other Western, really. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a unique Western. Again, not only because of the setting, but because of the way it tackles the characters and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and especially the the community aspects, which you don't see as much. You get something more of that, I think, from a more like time dedicated something. Like I, th- I think about Deadwood sometimes in combination with this. I feel like Deadwood yeah. must have had to take some influences, especially with how muddy Deadwood looks at times. It's it looks more like McCabe and Mrs. Miller than it does. Uh, kind of dusty studio backlot western yeah i mean it has like the smoke haze layer over it that makes it feel more like a dramatic stage play like something altman could have come from but uh i i don't know i i think it also works so well as a movie it's just it has those shots in that context that you really need on screen to establish what the greatest senses of place in a western oh and it's just it's got this I think it's interesting that it's got this very inherent understanding of the genre, even if it's something that Holtman isn't uh, an expert. It's not like you've got something like, uh, you know, John Ford being reflective of his own work in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, or like Once Upon a Time in the West, which is Leone's culmination of all of his influences, plus all the great things he did. This is a a singular work of the Western genre, and Holtman just seems to understand all of the important themes and uh, you know, characters and everything, and just knows how to instantly flip them on its head in its this very seamless fashion. It's uh, you know, it's a unique western and almost not a western, but entirely a western. You know, like I said, he said it's it's an anti-western, but it's entirely western in its characters and its themes, and you know what's going on with everything within the film. You know, it has all of the structure of it. Uh, it how could you not see this as one of the greatest westerns? It's, I mean, it's not a western the same way that Lighthouse is not a horror movie, right? It's it's obviously by going against it and understanding so well what doesn't work and what works in a western, I think it becomes emblematic of a certain kind. And I think the problem is uh, looking at its influences is that they're all singular. Like anything that it influences will be contained to themselves. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely a. Just a whole unique thing on its own, like we said. <laughs> um, and I just think it's interesting that Altman did so little work. He did some other work in westerns later. He did like a uh, a quasi western with uh, Paul Newman about kind of like the touring uh, road shows called uh, Buffalo Bill mm-hmm. and the Indians. Um, but nothing ca- kind of quite like this. And it's just interesting that Altman was able to hop so seamlessly from genre to genre. He just came off like a war film uh, prior to this, and yeah. uh, he did. But Mash, and then he did uh, a weird kind of surrealist art film called Bruce and McLeod, which is its own weird and inexplicable thing. Uh, that timed with Beatty just coming off Bonnie and Clyde and finding international celebrities, just the perfect timing for a thing to happen. Yeah, this is really the the beginning of the you know seventies uh, you know studio filmmaking here, which really you know gave way to some of our most memorable and. Uh, uh, interesting and introspective art, uh, I think, for all of cinema yeah. here. This is in 71. And Altman, you know, I think he really dominated in many ways and is often overlooked in that period. But, you know, he made uh, so many great, great films from the 70s. And, you know, we see a pattern of this as well with the 70s. Like, McCabe's only one example of 
uh, an old genre being taken anew. Even the following year, Coppola did it with The Godfather, taking the gangster film and giving it a new level of uh, sophistication and uh, introspection, like I said. Yeah, I think it's a big signal post for what's about to happen in the 70s and the kind of director control that's going to overtake the old studio system of the westerns uh, the way things used to be funded and the it's kind of like the marvel movies the way they're funded now it's a you have an idea a place and actors and then just fill them in fill in the blanks mm-hmm. well it's a it's definitely a kind of interesting juxtaposition like we said with the scorsese stuff who also came up in this time versus the the marvel conversation here where it definitely you know you see the uniqueness in the the voice of Altman coming through in all of his films and uh, mm. in McCabe especially McCabe is most certainly my favorite of all of his films uh, and not the least because of how uh, I came to love it alongside you and uh, this is actually the last time I saw it before this was when we first watched it together a year ago oh yeah uh, I watched it once more with my wife but I think it's a really special film and uh, I don't know I'm sure we'll watch it again someday yeah so oh no it's a, it's a pretty special thing I, I would say of all the films we've discussed and talked about together this one is the most personal between us the most uh, one we celebrate kind of equally here we've had lots of films who kind of come on equal terms with uh, even as recently as The Apartment was a wonderful podcast to do together and just absolutely fawn over the film for but this one it feels like you know it's, it's just that great feeling where you feel like you both discovered it at the same time like even though i i introduced the film to you i don't yeah. i don't feel like i i really loved the film until we watched it together and it just it just clicked this instant understanding in in synchronicity like you said and that was the kind of amazing moment of it yeah i don't think there are really any coincidences but a huge synchronicity in this one that makes it one of the most special films we've covered yeah i'm glad we got it for 51 here yeah i'm glad it's a it's a great start to our our next chapter here on the podcast, and uh, I think you're just another emblematic example of uh, you know our, our work together and how we feel about things and the, our our collective tastes. Uh, you know, I know you've got a, more, a couple more Altman to cross off your list, and I hope you know watching today has inspired you to go tackle a couple more in the near future. Oh, I have Nashville next up. Whenever I get to it, which I'm just stoked for. I might get through some Scorsese and then. Look yeah. at some Altman. We, we've definitely got some more Scorsese to get to because we're ramping up for a whole Scorsese uh, recap at the end of the month here when The Irishman comes in, which we'll also be including in that. And I'm very excited to do that. I'm also going back over a couple of Scorsese that I need to rewatch. And so that's going to be a fun thing to look forward to. Yeah, we have a huge season planned, and this is a great start to it. Thank you, buddy. Yeah, I'll talk to you next week. Meet tomorrow if you choose upon the shore Beneath the bridge that they are building on some endless river Then he leaves the platform for the sleeping car that's warm You realize he's only advertising one more shelter And it comes to you, he never was a stranger And you say, okay, the bridge or someplace later and then sweeping up the jokers that he left behind you find he did not leave you very much not even laughter like any dealer he was watching for the card that is so high and wild he'll never need to deal another he was just some joseph looking for a manger 
He was just some Joseph looking for a manger And leaning on your windowsill He'll say one day you caused his will To weaken with your love and warmth and shelter And then taking from his wallet An old schedule of trains He'll say I told you when I came I was a stranger I told you when I came I was a stranger I told you when I came I was a stranger